Hi, and welcome to The Right Stuff. I'm the Queen Parker J. Thank you so much for joining me for this President's Day. I usually talk about a book or something writing-related, but you know what? Let's take it up a notch and do something completely different. I have to tell you, the idea for this show is solely not on my shoulders. It's on Lewis Smith, my guest co-host today, because he thought it would be really interesting to learn interesting things about the Founding Fathers and those who were also the presidents of the United States. There's a lot of interest in this sort of history now about politics and government pre-20th century. I think a lot of it is attributed to the Hamilton musical that went out. Thought, you know what, let's go ahead and learn some interesting facts about the presidents of the U.S. of A. Lewis, how are you doing today? Oh, just fine. Glad to be back on the show again. Uh, I kind of had this idea for some time and thought it would be fun for your readers who haven't or your listeners who haven't uh, heard from me before. Uh, I am an author. I've taught U.S. history for 30 years now. Uh, my latest book, President Hamilton, is about the greatest president we never had. But tonight, I thought it'd be fun just to go through and honor of presidents today and talk about those that have had the chance to lead our country. And that is the key there, the chance to lead our country. And it is a very big responsibility, not just in the U.S. of A., but all over the world. People who are voted or elected or born into positions of leadership, they have this awesome responsibility to lead the country. Whether they are men or women, it doesn't matter. They are leading the country. A lot of people are very critical of these positions, but a lot of people aren't trying to run to be the president. Why do you think it's easier to just critique or it's easier to actually be part of the solution? Well, it's always easier to be an armchair quarterback than it is to be a real quarterback because nobody's trying to tackle you. (laughs) And that is the thing, of course, from the very beginning. We have loved to criticize our presidents. They are ours. And on the one hand, we build them up and tear them down uh, according to the current mood of the public, and yet at the same time, if something comes outside and threatens them, they're ours and you better not mess with them. You know, it's, it's really interesting to see how things have changed over the time. And so I thought we'd just kind of start, of course, uh, President's Day was established. Both Abraham Lincoln and George Washington had birthdays in February, and the country recognized Washington's birthday Really, almost from uh, the time he left the presidency onward, it was a time of gathering. Jefferson's birthday was in March, and for Jefferson's followers, the the early Democratic Party, Jefferson Day was a big holiday. And then Andrew Jackson was born about the same time, and it was Jefferson Jackson Day. And then Abraham Lincoln was born February 12th. And so when I was a kid growing up, we celebrated Washington's birthday and Lincoln's birthday. And then in the 70s, it was decided, you know, let's, let's consolidate all of them into February. And so they set aside a day to honor all those that held the office because it's a, it's a tough job. You know, it's the hardest job in the world. Some have succeeded and some have failed. One thing I always enjoy looking at is the ranking of the presidents uh, by historians. Uh, and, you know, most of the time I agree with the burden of history, particularly when you go further back. Sometimes I shake my head a little bit, but it's always interesting to see how they're rated, you know. And it's interesting, the top few slots and the bottom slots haven't changed a whole lot. And, uh, you know, one thing I tell my students when they ask me, well, what do you think about whoever's the current office holder? I'll say, you know, my opinion is kind of irrelevant because right now it's too soon. You don't really know until 20, 30 years have passed, you know, how history is going to judge someone, you know, just a, One example, uh, one of our post-World War II presidents, Harry Truman, made some tough decisions and was tremendously unpopular. He left office. You know, this was at the age when Gallup was beginning to do national polls. Harry Truman left office with an approval rating of around 35%. It had bottomed out at around 28%. And yet today, you know, the most recent historians poll rank him sixth overall. Uh, He's considered in the near great category. What is popular at the time doesn't always equal how history judges you. Abraham Lincoln, whom every historian pretty much puts at the top rank of our presidents, was actually pretty unpopular for most of his administration. And in fact, in the summer of 1864, he was far from certain that he'd be reelected. And yet, of course, part of it was Lincoln died at the perfect time to become a national hero. And kind of everything that we thought 
might have been, we pinned on him. Anyway, that's just an example of, of how current popular opinion may change and not, uh, not necessarily be the verdict of history. Some presidents who are very popular are ranked as being fairly mediocre. Some who were unpopular when they were president have gotten very high marks from historians. It's fascinating to look at the perspective in 20 to 30 years because you can also see whatever policies, laws, things of that nature were enacted, how they would affect the population as a whole. One of the presidents that came to mind as you were talking was Franklin D. Roosevelt during the 1930s. And my granny remembered listening to him with the fireside chats he used to do with the nation. So it's fascinating to see this aspect of how time will affect your reputation. You may not always be there to see the appreciation of the things that you have done, but they are recorded through time. Everyone's talking about Alexander Hamilton, who was not a president, but because they were talking about Alexander Hamilton, people are now interested in the history of the founding fathers, the presidents, politics of the 18th and 19th centuries. Lots of good things are happening, and we're starting to probe through history. When we talk about probing through history, what do we have to be mindful of as we begin to make these rankings and opinions of the presidents and their performance? It's important to go to the primary sources, look at what they said and what they did and what others said about them while they were alive to kind of get the raw, unfiltered version. But then you also have to look at the long-term consequences. The immediate short-term public opinion may not be history's same opinion, but at the same time, it's a good way to take the temperature of how this person was viewed during their lifetime and then how that can change over time. So tell us a little bit about how the presidency got started. So when America was first established, uh, when we won our independence from the British in 1783, they had kind of cobbled together this government on the fly during the revolution that was called, it was organized under a document called the Articles of Confederation, very different from our government today. There was no national court system, and there was no chief executive. There was just a Congress, and the Congress could not tax. It could not regulate trade. It had no enforcement mechanism. It could pass laws for the whole country. They had no enforcement mechanism to make sure the states obeyed them. So after a few years of this, it wasn't working. America was drowning in debt. We couldn't even begin to pay the interest on our debt, and so they summoned the Constitutional Convention. The most trusted man in America at that point was George Washington, because Washington, at the end of the Revolution, there had been an attempt to make him into a king. The, the Continental Army was fed up with the Congress, fed up with not being paid, and they met at a place called Newburgh, and they were ready to make George Washington first king of the United States. He was like, no, what are you thinking? We're done with kings in this country. In 1783, he handed his sword to Congress, resigned command of the army, and went back to being a farmer. And because he had refused that level of power, the country knew that he could be trusted with whatever power they chose to give him. So when they summoned the Constitutional Convention, James Madison, who was kind of the driving force behind it, insisted that Washington be a delegate because that would lend his credibility to whatever they achieved. And so, of course, they, in the space of the summer of 1787, they wrote the United States Constitution as we have it today except for the amendments, and they created the office of the presidency. Everybody there knew George Washington was going to be the first president. He was the only man who could have been the first president of the United States. The question is, who would follow after him, and what safeguards would they put on the office? And boy, if you look at the Constitution, the entire executive branch is described in Article 2, and it's about a page and a half. And a half a page of that is describing how the president would be elected. So really, it's a one-page job description to build the most important office in the country upon. Washington was chosen. And something else, the way the electoral process was designed to work, uh, there were no political parties when the founders got together. And they really hoped there never would be. It. And so they created a system that didn't take political parties into account. Each state would choose electors. The electors would meet in Washington. Each elector had two votes for president. They voted for whoever they thought was the best and most qualified person to be president in the first slot, and then their second choice in the second slot. The only restriction was that both their choices could not come from the same state. And then when they tallied up the votes, whoever got the most votes became president. Whoever got the second most votes became vice president. And so when they did that, Washington was the unanimous choice for top slot both times. And John Adams got the second slot both times. 
And so Washington created the presidency. He had a page of the Constitution to go on, but everything he worked out in practice, you know, he took over time. And, and even simple things, how do we address the president? A lot of people wanted a real highfalutin title because the president was a head of state. He was the equal of any king or queen, and so they wanted him to have a majestic title. John Adams actually suggested his elective majesty, the president of the United States and defender of the rights of state. Uh, that was a little bit wordy. The Senate debated it for a month, and finally somebody asked George Washington, well, what do you think? And he said, well, I think Mr. President will be just fine. And literally to this day, that's how we address the president of the United States. Washington could have kept being elected president as long as he was alive. Even though he was a little less popular in his second term, there was still nobody else that the country really wanted, and he could have run for three terms or even four terms. He said eight years was long enough. Now, part of that was he was tired of uh, having to pull Hamilton and Jefferson apart by the hair. Also, he said, you know, eight years is long enough. Anything more than that is a little bit too much like a monarchy. And so he stepped down after eight years. Even though it was not written into the Constitution until 1952, all later presidents except one honored that president and stepped down after their two terms were up. Washington bowed out and handed it over to John Adams. And Adams was elected in the first contested election. And you had already had, before Washington even left office, the beginnings of the first two political parties, the Federalists led by Hamilton and Adams and the Democratic-Republicans led by Jefferson. So when the electors got together, they elected Adams president, and Jefferson, his rival, became vice president. And they disagreed so strongly on matters of policy that pretty soon they weren't even speaking to each other. So Adams kind of had his own turbulent presidency. He was a stubborn and proud man. He was a brilliant man. John Adams, I've concluded after reading a lot about him, was never happy unless he had something to complain about, <laughs> you know. He was just a kind of a cranky soul, God bless him. So he won, or he won in 1796, lost in 1800. Uh, and now that was kind of weird because there was a tie in the electoral college. 73 votes for John or for uh, Thomas Jefferson, 65 votes for John Adams. But then the Democratic Republicans also cast 73 votes for Aaron Burr. Somebody was supposed to leave that second slot blank and forgot to, and that got thrown to the House of Representatives. There were 42 ballots. The deadlock was finally broken in Jefferson's favor, and so they amended the Constitution, the 12th Amendment. So from that point on, the president and vice president would be elected on separate ballots, so there'd be no confusion about which was intended for which office. Now, Jefferson was another one, very popular president, very well-liked, uh, and, of course, his big achievement with the Louisiana Purchase. Now, it's interesting, Jefferson used to be ranked very far up. He was like in fourth place in most historian polls. More recently, he's fallen down. Uh, he's still in the top ten. But, um, and some of that, of course, is because of our changing attitudes towards slaveholding and slavery and the fact that Jefferson was a slave owner. And some of that, I honestly think that while his achievements as a founding father and the author of the Declaration of Independence were stellar, his presidency was mixed back. Uh, you had the Louisiana Purchase, which was great for the country, but he also gutted the military and left us unprepared for the War of 1812 that came after him. Jefferson, to be perfectly honest, could be a bit of a weasel. He was very good at saying one thing and doing another. But nonetheless, he also, uh, the Federalist Party was withering away when he left office. He could have been elected to a third term, but he chose to honor George Washington's precedent. Madison was the third president. He got elected, and we almost immediately got into a war with Great Britain. He barely got reelected in the midst of the war. And the War of 1812 was a deadlock, except for the last battle. And in the last battle, a general named Andrew Jackson just trounced the British at New Orleans, killed 2,400 British soldiers for a loss of 125 of his own men, killed all three of their commanding generals. The you know, Americans thought of the war as a win, even though really we barely got out of it with the skin of our teeth, but the fact that this young upstart country had taken on the strongest nation on earth and fought him to a standstill gave us a lot of encouragement and patriotism. And so James Madison went out very popular. Uh, now, historians generally rank him as a brilliant founding father and a slightly better than average president, but he's never really been rated in the top 10 of American presidents in modern ratings. Uh, he was followed by James Monroe. Monroe was uh, a remarkable guy, or well, he lived in remarkable times and he met some remarkable people. 
In person, of all the presidents I've read about, I think James Monroe is one of the most boring. I read a 600-page biography, and you just couldn't get any spark of personality. You know, with Washington, you had that rock-like integrity. With Jefferson, you had that keen, probing mind that wanted to know all about everything. You know, with Adams, you had that stubbornness and that fight and that sassiness. Uh, and with Madison, you had this scholarly, analytical mind that pretty much created our system of government. And then you get James Monroe. He's stolid and he's moral for the most part. He's pretty decent. He presided over an era of great peace and prosperity. But there's just not a lot of interesting James Monroe stories from his presidency. He was a brave soldier during the Revolution, nearly died at the Battle of Trenton. And he's also, other than George Washington, the only president to run for re-election without an opponent. The Federalist Party had just withered away and died after the War of 1812. And so when James Monroe ran for re-election. Nobody ran against him, and the electoral vote was like, uh, I think, 227 to 1. One elector voted for John Quincy Adams, who wasn't even running because, A, he didn't like Monroe very much, and, B, he thought a unanimous vote should be something reserved only for George Washington. Uh, So Monroe stepped down, and then John Quincy Adams stepped in, and Adams was a lot like his dad in a lot of ways, very brilliant, very keen-minded somewhat argumentative, not much of a people person. But the main problem with John Adams is he came in in a very controversial election. Uh, He finished second in the popular vote and in the electoral vote, but the election got thrown to the House. Andrew Jackson had come in, believe it. Henry Clay, the Speaker of the House, didn't think Jackson was fit to be president. And so he threw his electoral votes to Adams, and in the, it was the second and last time an election was decided in the House of Representatives, they gave the election to John Quincy Adams, and Andrew Jackson said there was a corrupt bargain and pretty much started his campaign the next day. And poor John Quincy Adams had four years of being called a crook and a corrupt bargainer and all these other nasty names. And then in 1828, Andrew Jackson got elected. Well, let me stop you there because you're going down the list of the former of the presidents of the U.S. of A. And it's really interesting to see the changing attitudes of the president as you go down this list, which I find absolutely quite fascinating. There was an aspect I wanted to talk about. Americans, generally speaking, mm-hmm. when we look at the U.K. now, they have a commonwealth. We're actually fascinated by kings, queens, the monarchy, titles, rankings. Back then, I would think that these progenitors of our country would have abhorred that sort of pomp and circumstance because of the corruption of the king. Mm -hmm. So would that attitude have continued down the line of the presidency, like you mentioned about John Quincy Adams and going into President Jackson? Well, what happened, uh, of course, now Washington, he believed the president should conduct himself with the dignity appropriate to a head of state. And so he would hold levies where he would greet guests, and he would come in at a very punctual hour, circulate around the room, shake hands, and bow to each person there. Very little actual conversation, very formal. Adams didn't have the presence to carry that off. And Jefferson said the whole levy thing was a little bit too much like a king greeting his subjects. And Jefferson simplified things a lot. Of course, Jefferson's favorite word for anything he didn't like was that it was a monarchy or smacked of monarchy or, or whatever. You know, that was his favorite label for his opponents like Hamilton. You know, he considered Hamilton a monarchist, uh, which he was not. But you had this idea of Republican simplicity, not the Republican Party, which didn't exist yet, but little art that the leader of a republic should be one of the people. So Jefferson lounged around the White House uh, in uh, slippers that were down at the hill and a dressing gown that wasn't always really clean. As a matter of fact, the British ambassador came to visit when Jefferson was president, and the president came to the door and opened it up and let him in and excused himself for a moment. And the British ambassador thought it was the White House butler and was going to upbraid the president for having such a slovenly butler Uh, And then the man plopped down in the chair across from him and steepled his fingers under his chin and said, now, Mr. Ambassador, what may I do for you? And he realized he was actually talking to the president of the U.S. Uh, Jefferson was just not a terribly formal character. And, of course, things were so different then. There was no Secret Service. There were no bodyguards. People could come and go as they pleased from the White House. They could, the president, 
often walked down to the markets in Washington to buy his own vegetables for the White House cook to prepare. Uh, and there was a lot more mingling between the president and people. And part of that was because it was a lot smaller country. Lewis, that was an absolutely hysterical story about the president meeting the ambassador of the U.K. in his slippers and looking like someone literally off the street. You know, it's funny because Jefferson, you know, by birth, he was an aristocrat. He came from a wealthy Virginia family. He owned a large estate, but in his mannerisms, he was uh, just very down-to-earth in his dress. He was simple. Others were a little bit more, you know, Madison, you know, it was said of him, he dressed like an undertaker. But, you know, Madison was five foot four. He was a little guy. So he had to present himself in a dignified manner. John Quincy Adams, uh, when he was president, he would, he would slip down to the Potomac River and go swimming early in the morning. Every morning he believed that that was very healthy. And, of course, back then there was no such thing as swimsuits. So John Quincy Adams would literally slip down to the Potomac and go skinny dipping. Uh, in the morning and then come back and get dressed to go back to the White House and begin his day's work. And there was a female writer who wanted an interview with the president. John Quincy Adams was kind of an old-fashioned guy. Journalism was considered unladylike, and so he wasn't going to give her the interview. And she found out about his schedule and went down to the riverbank one morning and sat down on his clothes and would not move until he gave her an interview. And, of course, being something of a New England Puritan, there was no way John Quincy Adams was going to step out of the water. So he stood in the water up to his chest and answered her questions until she finally was satisfied and left and let him get dressed. That's insane. I can't believe someone would do that. And this is the president of the USA. But that shows you just what the president was back in the day as opposed to what the president is now. That would never happen. That that would never happen. Well, today, and, of course, it's a necessity because – we're in a more violent society. I mean, four presidents have been assassinated. Several others have had assassination attempts. And the presidents can't get out and mingle with the people. And, and you know, even though many of them want to, it's harder and more dangerous for a president uh, to be, you know, unguarded in the midst of a crowd. But really, you know, up until uh, the post-World War II era, Harry Truman would go for a walk down the streets of Washington almost every day. Uh, and, and it was not a problem if you wanted to see him. Uh, you know, you just kind of waited on his route for his walk and waved and said hello. Andrew Jackson, I have to tell you some stories about him. And, of course, Jackson was another one whose reputation today suffered somewhat because he's a southerner and a slaveholder. And, of course, he's remembered for his conflict with the Indians, which every 19th century president had conflict with the Indians. But Jackson was a soldier before he was president, and so he actually fought in those wars but he was a capable president, and he was also widely regarded, one of his nicknames was the champion of the common man, because he was the first president who wasn't either from a wealthy Virginia planter family or a Harvard graduate. So Andrew Jackson was orphaned at an early age, came up from nothing, had very little formal education. You know, uh, one of the old textbooks I used to teach from said that adversity was his university. Uh, he was a, a hot-tempered. Uh, six foot two and weighed 140 pounds. I mean, he was a string bean of a man, strong and tough and wiry. Uh, he had fought in multiple duels, killed a man in one duel. In fact, the man insulted his wife, uh, and Andrew Jackson challenged him to a duel, let the other man shoot first, took a bullet in the shoulder, and then calmly aimed his pistol and shot the other man through the heart. And somebody asked him wow. why he let the other man shoot first. And he said, the man slandered by Rachel, and I was going to kill him, and I didn't want to have my aim thrown off by being hit by a bullet as I was pulling the trigger. But he said, I didn't care if he shot me through the brain. I was going to kill him before I fell. And Jackson, when he was inaugurated, it was like, you know, he was the first president who wasn't from Virginia or Massachusetts. He was from Tennessee. And the folk on the frontier just regarded him as one of their own. 20,000 people came to Washington, D.C. for his inauguration. They packed into the White House. So many people shook his hand that Andrew Jackson had two broken bones in his hand, uh, and the press of the crowd was so great, they hustled him out of the White House and put him in a hotel just to keep him from being thronged to death by well-wishers. And then the people started tearing the White House apart, cutting pieces of the drapes, spitting on the floor, cutting pieces of the carpet for souvenirs and all of this. And so there was free barbecue and whiskey, and they just moved the wagons further and further down the White House lawn towards the Potomac River until finally nearly everybody was outside of the White House going to get seconds. 
and they slammed and locked all the doors and then went through and kicked everybody out. The story goes, I don't know if this is true or not, but it's too good not to be, uh, that two days later, Andrew Jackson called his first cabinet meeting, and as they began to talk, a closet door opened, and this shirtless man in a coonskin cap with an empty whiskey jug came staggering out wanting to know where the whiskey was. He'd been passed out in the White House closet for two days, and the butlers had missed it. I can't believe that. This, it's so incredible to hear these stories about the early presidents of the U.S. because it seems so anathema, for the lack of a better term, for anything like that to happen. There's so much protocol, so many stipulations. But like you said, it was a less violent time, but over time things just became a necessity. So you have the president really being one of the people, and then I guess over time that position elevated. He was elected by the people, but he was of the people. And now mm-hmm. the president, the attitudes about the president have changed over the years as well. So that's going to be fascinating to watch this change of the presidents happen as you continue mm-hmm. telling these very you know interesting what's funny is some of the presidents who were uh, highly regarded by the common people didn't really come from the common people. The first seven presidents, virtually everybody's heard of. I mean, you know, they're, they're still pretty well household names. After Andrew Jackson, between Jackson and Lincoln, yeah, a group of guys who did some significant things, but most folks have no idea who they were. Uh, the guy that followed Andrew Jackson was Martin Van Buren. And Martin Van Buren built his whole political career pretty much on sucking up to Andrew Jackson. I mean, he was a shameless sucker. Uh, matter of fact, uh, talking to one of Jackson's nephews, so he knew it would get back to the president's, he once said, I think Andrew Jackson is the most perfect man to walk the earth since Jesus Christ. Really? Yes. Really? Okay. Yes. He was that big of a sucker. But, you know, it stood him in good stead. He helped carry New York for Jackson, and so he was named Secretary of State, which is the premier cabinet position in Jackson's second term. He was pushed up to the vice presidency since Jackson and his first vice president, John C. Calhoun, had become bitter enemies. Uh, And then Jackson, who had a a powerful political machine, pulled out all the stops to get Martin Van Buren elected as president. And then Jackson went home to Tennessee, and poor old Van Buren inherited all of Jackson's enemies and none of his popularity. Not only that, some of Jackson's bad economic decisions came home to roost after he left office, and you had a three-year-long recession called the Panic of 1837, and poor old Van Buren caught the blame. You know, presidents always catch the blame for the economy, whether it's due to their policies or not. Poor old Van Buren just wasn't very popular. And so the newly formed party called the Whigs, because in England, the Whig party always opposed royal power. And the Whigs said Andrew Jackson was too much like the king. You know, they nicknamed him King Andrew I. So they put up William Henry Harrison, who, even though he came from a wealthy Virginia family and was a very wealthy planter, They portrayed him as this simple man of the people, born in a log cabin he built with his own two hands. So they basically turned him into Andrew Jackson Redux, but for the other side. That was the year of the famous campaign slogan, Tippecanoe and Tyler too, because Harrison had won the Battle of Tippecanoe during the Indian Wars, and his running mate, John Tyler, was a Democrat from Virginia to bring in people from the other party. Poor old uh, Martin Van Buren wound up being a one-term wonder, Uh, And then you get William Henry Harrison in there, and he's known for two things. He gave the longest inaugural address of any president. He spoke for two hours and 40 minutes. Even in an age of long political speeches, that was a stem winder. It was March, it was 40 degrees, and it was raining. And speaking for two hours and 40 minutes in the cold rain, he caught a cold. It turned into pneumonia, and he died 28 days later. So they have the longest inaugural address and the shortest presidency. That is horrible, and I am not going to be ironic and say something about talking too much. I am (laughs) not going to do that. It's okay. It's been said by many others already. Okay. And so this was the first time ever that a president died in office, and it created a constitutional conundrum because – the Constitution says if the president dies, the powers and duties of the presidency shall devolve onto the vice president. 
it did not say the vice president shall become president. So there was some controversy, should we refer to him as the acting president until the next election? How exactly does that work? And John Tyler settled it very simply. He called a judge. He asked the judge to administer the presidential oath of office to him, and he insisted that everybody call him Mr. President from that point forward. Uh, and John Tyler, uh, you know, his opponents kind of mockingly called him his accidency instead of his excellency. He was the first president to be kicked out of the political party that elected him, because even though the Whigs elected him, he was still a Democrat at heart. He vetoed a whole bunch of the Whig political agenda, and so they read him out of the party. The Whigs kicked him out. The Democrats wouldn't take him back. And so he was a president without a party for three years and 11 months. He also was the first president to get married while in office. His first wife died, and his second wife, uh, and uh, he had a house full of kids. He had like six children by his first wife, and several of them were still quite young. And so the 50-year-old president, uh, I think 51 years old at the time, married a 23-year-old and okay. started a second family and had eight more children with her. Wow. His last son was born when, he, when uh, John Tyler was 70 <laughs> in 1860. And here's what's crazy. Even though John Tyler was born in 1790, today in 2022, he still has one living grandson. Are you serious? Not a great-grandson, a grandson, because that youngest son of his who was born in 1860, something similar happened to him when he was like 55 years old, which would have put it around, uh, what, 1920 uh, or thereabouts. Uh, his wife died. He remarried a younger woman, started a second family. His last two children were born in the 1930s, and I believe I'm right that one of them is still alive today. I know it was as of last year. You know, hey, I know. This it is makes so you realize much, just how how brief American history is. That, that, that's and that's the, and this, the drama of all these stories you're telling. Just adds to that appreciation for for what we have here. But go ahead and continue. So, uh, and uh, but basically, John Tyler, you know, he wasn't renominated by either party. He kind of tried to catch the Democratic nomination. Uh, and so when uh, neither party nominated him, the Democrats won the 1844 election. They elected James K. Polk, uh, and Tyler wanted to be remembered for something besides all those kids and being uh, uh, kicked out of the Whig Party. And so right before he left office in January 1845, he uh, introduced the great state of Texas into the Union. Uh, the Republic of Texas was annexed by a joint resolution of Congress signed by President Tyler, his rationale was James K. Polk had run on a platform of annexing Texas, and since Polk won the election, that was obviously the will of the people, even though it was a very close election, and why not go ahead and do it, and so Congress did, and so Texas joined the Union, uh, which caused Mexico to do something they'd been threatening to do for 10 years. They had said ever since Texas declared its independence and, and won it the Battle of San Jacinto that if the U.S. annexed Texas, that would cause a war. So in Polk's presidency, you have the Mexican-American War. Now, James K. Polk, he's probably the most important president no one's ever heard of because he's not remembered well today, but some incredible things about it. He made six campaign promises and kept all six of them. The only president to ever keep ever promises that he made. He said that he would annex Texas into the Union. He said that he would lower the tariff. He said that he would recharter the independent treasury system that had been allowed to lapse under uh, President uh, Tyler or, or President John Tyler. Uh, he also said he would add California to the Union. He would add Oregon to the Union, and he would do it all in one term and not run for re-election. And he did them all and worked himself into an early grave. He died two months after leaving the presidency. That brings something to mind because I was told that for every one year that a president is in office, they age four. And they've shown pictures of, let's say, uh, a president from when he first takes office and then his last day or so. He, he ages pretty pretty fast. Especially today, because there's so much writing on him. Uh, it was true of many, not of all. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, James K. Polk was never healthy, and, and he never delegated anything. He did everything himself. He answered all of his own letters. 
uh, worked up to 14 hours, 16 hours a day, took one vacation in four years, and even then it was a working vacation. And, uh, yeah, uh, it pretty well killed him. Uh, and so uh, when he let, died in, uh, or left office in 1848, uh, they elected Zachary Taylor, who was a hero from the Mexican War, hero of the Battle of Buena Vista. Uh, he served for two years. Uh, he signed. The, uh, he uh, isn't remembered for a whole lot, uh, you know, other than being a great general in the Mexican War. And then he died in office in the summer of 1850 of food poisoning. Uh, ate too many. Uh, yeah, he had a milk and ice cherries at a Fourth of July picnic, and the cherries had been out in the sun a little bit too long. And so he dies in office. He's replaced by Millard Fillmore, uh, who is another president nobody's ever heard of. And Fillmore didn't do a whole lot. He signed the Compromise of 1850 into law, and that was about it. Uh, he was replaced by Franklin Pierce. Pierce is one of our younger presidents. He was 46 when he was elected, and he was the best-looking president of the 19th century. Now, that's not saying a whole lot when you look at their, their portraits and photographs. They weren't a terribly handsome bunch. Uh, but he was young. He still had raven dark hair that he wore shoulder length, and the ladies said he looked like Lord Byron. Uh, but he is generally ranked as one of the worst presidents in American history. Uh, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which tore the country into over slavery, was signed into law by him. And uh, the presidency for him was personally tragic. On his way to Washington to take office, the train he was riding in derailed. He and his wife were okay, but their 10-year-old son was killed before their eyes. Uh, and uh, Pierce's wife, you know, losing a child will either draw a couple closer together or it will push them apart. With the Pierces, it pushed them apart. His wife grieved intensely. She blamed him for their boy's death, and he started drinking and spent a good part of his presidency drunk. Matter of fact, when he was told he would not be nominated for a second term, his response was, well, I guess there's nothing for me to do but get drunk then, and did. Uh, he was succeeded by James Buchanan, who was uh, nearly all historians rank as the worst president in American history. The country was tearing itself in part, and Buchanan did nothing to stop it. In fact, his lack of leadership made the divide between North and South even worse. Uh, and, of course, he was succeeded by Abraham Lincoln, and Lincoln, again, is at the top of nearly every historian's poll. First of all, because he crushed slavery through the 13th Amendment and the Emancipation Proclamation. And secondly, because he led the country through the gravest existential threat in its history. Uh, Lincoln's always been one of my favorites. I'm doing a lot of research uh, about him because my latest writing project uh, is about Lincoln. Uh, we can talk about that one another time, but it's going to be a really fun, uh, another bout into alternative history. Um, I got a question for you. Yeah. When you say about uh, the president before Lincoln, what was his name again? Forgive me. Buchanan. Well, President Buchanan, and then you have Lincoln. I can't help but see the parallel in the Bible with Manasseh, uh, King Manasseh, and then the greatest king, I think it was, uh, not Hezekiah. Josiah. Josiah, thank you. Josiah. I just saw that parallel as soon as you mentioned it, you know. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, Lincoln, I think he stands on his own accomplishments. I think he deserves the the, the designation he's given as our greatest president, but also it's not hard to shine when you're preceded by a succession of non-entities and sinkers, uh, you know, and, and also followed by one who's ranked pretty badly, uh, Andrew Johnson. Uh, and so, yeah, Lincoln is, Lincoln, just the more I learn about him, the more he impresses me. I mean, he was a politician with the soul of a poet. He was a man who hated violence, yet wound up presiding over the bloodiest war in American history. And from the start to finish of his political career, he believed in liberty. He believed the Declaration of Independence was literal when it said that all men are created equal. I loved, loved, loved Steven Spielberg's movie, Lincoln. Uh, one of the best portrayals I've ever seen of any American president. Such a powerful portrayal. After President Lincoln, we have who? Uh, Andrew Johnson. Uh, and Johnson, you know, he was a man who loved the Union. He was from Tennessee. And he was the only senator from the South that did not bail out and go South when, the, when his state seceded from the Union. He said he believed that secession was unconstitutional and illegal, uh, and he was elected to represent the people of Tennessee and Washington, and that was what he was going to do. So when the Union armies conquered uh, Tennessee in 1862, 
Lincoln appointed Andrew Johnson as military governor there until the war could be ended. And Johnson did a good job. I mean, he held Tennessee. There were threats against his life. His house got burned down by angry Confederates, uh, and yet he held the job. So as Lincoln was looking at his second term, moving past the war and trying to put the country back together again, he thought it would help to have a Southerner on the ticket with it, someone that could be his goodwill ambassador to the South to try to help with Reconstruction. And so he named Andrew Johnson as his vice president. But then Lincoln was killed, and Johnson suddenly steps up. And this man, who had no formal education and who still had a lot of the prejudices of the South deeply ingrained in him, became president. And Andrew Johnson was okay with freeing the slaves. He was not okay with making them citizens. And he wound up fighting the Congress to the nail over Reconstruction. Um, and, you know, his famous statement was, uh, this is a white man's country, and I intend to keep it that way. And so most of the Republicans came to regard him as having betrayed Lincoln's legacy, and uh, he became the first president to be impeached. They fell short of removing him by one vote in the Senate. Uh, closest we've ever come to actually removing a president from office, and kind of the unwritten deal, they agreed the impeachment would fail, and he would agree to stop blocking Reconstruction, but the thing is, his resistance had so emboldened the South that the attempt that followed under President Grant to create real citizenship for the freed slaves in the South and to make them equal citizens wound up failing because of organizations like the KKK and because the South just decided they could kind of wait out President Grant and wait for the North to lose interest in enforcing equality, and that's exactly what happened. Grant, on the other hand, he is a president that in the beginning of historians' polls back in the 60s was ranked very low. He was considered a failed president. And in more recent years, his standing has risen significantly. And, and part of it was, you know, Southern historians really came to dominate the writing of Civil War histories in the late 19th, early 20th century. And, of course, they peddled the lost cause myth that the war wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights. And Grant was a conundrum to them because they couldn't call him a bad general because he beat their beloved Robert E. Lee. And, and Grant did. I mean, Grant had superior numbers, but in the end, he was also, I think, just a better general. Uh, so they couldn't fault him as a general. So the line they took with Grant was great general failed president. And Grant had a lot of problems in his presidency. He trusted some of the wrong people. There was some corruption in his cabinet. But he was a century ahead of his time on civil rights. In 1872, when Ulysses Grant for, ran for re-election, almost one million African Americans voted. I mean, he was serious about enforcing voting rights in the South. He sent the army into the South to smash the KKK and to protect the polling places and to make sure that the freedmen could vote. Do you know that that many blacks would not vote again in an American election until 1972? It just goes to show you why the minority vote, different, depending on what ethnic group you fall into, can be extremely important. And you can just see the relevancy of that in today's oh. world um, like a, a flashlight. <laughs> you can just see it. It's just very important oh, yeah. about that. And, uh, yeah. and the thing is, Grant was truly committed to equality, but the North was losing patience and the resistance in the South was growing stiffer. And so between 1872 and 1876, when Grant was leaving office, uh, the number of black voters in the South dropped catastrophically, like by almost three quarters, because most of the Southern states, the Southern Democrats had reclaimed control of government, and they had used violence and intimidation and in some cases outright murder to keep, uh, you know, the freed slaves away from the polls. And so 1876, you had a contested election. And the thing is, by the actual votes cast, the Democrat Sam Tilden probably won. However, there was such massive voter suppression throughout the South, had everyone who wanted to vote been allowed to vote, particularly in the African-American community, Rutherford Hayes would have won it hands down. As it was, this election, it came down to there were three states that still had Republican governors, still had the so-called governments in place, and those governors were threatened with being lynched if they dared return polls for Republican candidates. 
And so what they did was they submitted two sets of returns, one for the Democrat, one for the Republican, and said, you know what, you guys in Washington can sort this out. We lock our feet staying on the ground and our necktie is not attached to the other end of the tree. Uh, and so they sent two sets of returns to Washington, and they appointed a special committee that looked at the returns, and in the end, a bargain was cut. Rutherford Hayes, the Republican, got to become president, but he agreed to end Reconstruction in the South, pull the Union troops out, and basically let Southern Democrats take control back. And that was the beginning of Jim Crow and segregation and everything else that flowed into the 20th century. Basically, the South never quit resisting, and the North eventually got tired of trying to force something on them they didn't want. And there was a great reconciliation between the former Union and the former Confederates in the years following that. And uh, they called it clasping hands across the bloody chasm. But those who were lost in the shuffle were the freed slaves. You know, the, the reconciliation between North and South came at the expense of African Americans, and they would be brutally oppressed in the South and denied the right to vote for the next uh, almost 100 years. It wasn't until the Voting Rights Act of 64 that the table began to turn. And ironically, that act was championed and forced through Congress by Southern President Lyndon Johnson. I find it fascinating with all these facts. You can actually see the course of a country changing just through its leadership. And mm -hmm. I know we're going to keep it just to the, before pre-20th century, so it won't go past, right. uh, past that because then uh, we start to get into more contemporary topics. And it's that can get and it's, and it's gets a little controversial, and, you know, I don't want to turn into that type of show, but it's just yeah. really informative. And so I love how you painted this beautiful picture of the country and the beginning and to the end of the 19th century. And I really enjoyed that. You can just see how the president changed over time, but you also see the responsibility growing more and more as the country expands. Right. The so country's now, getting bigger and bigger. The, the Transcontinental Railroad in 1877 actually had the first railroad connection from the East Coast to the West. And instead of taking a year to go from New York to California, you could do it in a week. Uh, and, of course, more states were joining the union now, it's kind of funny. Everybody knows about Lincoln, and most people know at least a little bit about Grant, and maybe at least they know Andrew Johnson was impeached. After Grant, you get into the next set of presidents that no one's ever heard of. Uh, and that era was called the Gilded Age uh, because it was beautiful and shiny on the outside and cheap and tacky on the inside. It was the greatest period of corruption in the history of our government, and the presidents really became non-entities. What happened is during Johnson's presidency, Congress kind of grabbed that initiative back, and the Congress became the dominant branch of government, and the presidents were mainly bureaucratic figureheads. So after Grant, you had Rutherford Hayes, who had a miserable four years because he was uh, basically seized power or, or you know, was elected in a very tainted election. Most people called him his fraudulency and said that he had essentially stolen the office. Uh, and then in 1880... James Garfield of Ohio won, and, you know, Garfield might have been a great president. He was young. He was like 45, 46 years old, had young kids, had strong ideas about civil rights. He might have reversed the tide in the South a little bit, but six, uh, less than six months into his presidency, he was elected in November, took office in March because there was a five-month lame-duck period back then. Uh, and then in July, he was walking to the train station to take his first break since being elected president to go down to the coast with his family, and a guy shot him in the back. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, well, what it was, the spoil system had gotten so bad, a president spent his first three months in office giving jobs to everybody who helped him get elected, which meant firing the current batch of civil servants. And there was this nutty guy named Charles Guito, who was a street preacher, who firmly believed that he had carried New York for Garfield, and so Garfield owed him one. He asked to be made Secretary of State, and everyone was like, wait, who are you? We kind of promised that job to Senator Blaine. Uh, and then he said, well, okay, I will accept ambassador to Paris. And eventually, uh, 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 Guiteau is like waiting out on the White House lawn day after day, and finally the Secretary of State, James Blaine, said, look, the appointments are made. Your contribution wasn't that significant. You're not getting anything. Go home. And so Guiteau got it in his head since there were two factions in the Republican Party, uh, the half-breeds and the stalwarts, that if he assassinated Garfield, uh, that his vice president, Chester A. Arthur, a stalwart, would become president, and he would give Guiteau a job since Guiteau made him president. 
So I shot Garfield in the back, and honestly, it wasn't that bad of an injury. If they just slapped a bandage on it and given him a few days bed rest, Garfield might have recovered. Uh, but the doctors insist on probing for the bullet, and septic theory had not really caught on in the United States. They were probing for that bullet with unwashed fingers, uh, and it created a massive septic infection, and the president lingered for eight weeks, getting more and more sick, and finally died in September. Uh, and he was succeeded by Chester A. Arthur, and Arthur is like a president. Nobody knows who he was, and yet he did something pretty important he wrote the outrage of Garfield's assassination and used it to reform the civil service. And it's ironic because he was a political hack. His whole career had been based on patronage jobs, and yet he was the one who signed the Pendleton Act and reformed the civil service, and it started us on the track to a better government bureaucracy and a more effective bureaucracy, but the party bosses never forgave him, so in 1884 they wrote him off. Uh, and that gives us the rowdiest election of the 19th century, the election of 1884. Uh, the Democrats, at this point, had been shut out of the White House for nearly 30 years. The last time they won an election was in 1856 with James Buchanan. They're desperate to recapture the White House. And so they nominated the governor of New York, Grover Cleveland. They nominated Grover Cleveland, who was renowned for his honesty and straightforwardness, for cleaning up corruption. I mean, he was this squeaky clean sheriff of Erie County, governor of New York, well-known for all sorts of reforms and cleaning up corruption and taking on the big business and the bosses. And the Republicans nominated the former Secretary of State, James Blaine, senator from Maine, wonderful orator, long-term senator, professional politician through and through, and kind of crooked to the core. Uh, and so it was kind of the establishment against the reformer. But then in the midst of the summer of 1884, as the election was getting into full swing, a newspaper broke the story that Grover Cleveland, a decade before when he was attorney in Buffalo, New York, had fathered a child with an unmarried woman. And not only that, after the baby was born, he had her committed to an insane asylum and had the baby sent to an orphanage and put up for adoption. And you understand, at the height of the Victorian era, that was about as scandalous as you could possibly get. And it was also mostly true. And the thing about it, when the story broke, uh, Cleveland's campaign manager telegraphed his boss and said, uh, what should we do? Is there any wiggle room on this? How should we spin it? And Grover Cleveland came back six words. He said, whatever you do, tell the truth. And as the story came out, Turned out this lady had been dispensing her favors pretty freely among several attorneys in the greater Buffalo area, but Cleveland was the only one who wasn't married. So when she came up pregnant, he claimed paternity. After the baby was born, she kind of descended into alcoholism and started neglecting the child. He had her sent to a sanitarium to get cleaned up, and he arranged for the baby to be adopted by a wealthy family. And at that point, he felt he had done his due diligence and walked away. Oh, the, the, the Republican press made great hay with it. They had men dressing in drag outside Democratic headquarters and conventions, pushing baby carriages with dolls in them and chanting, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? But Blaine had problems of his own. Uh, uh, he went to one rally where a preacher was blasting the Democrats, and he said, what has the Democratic Party ever been except the party of Rome, Romanism and rebellion? Uh, talking about the Democrats were against prohibition, too many Democrats were Catholic, and the Democratic Party had, you know, uh, been the leaders of the South of the Civil War. Well, in New York City, where he gave that speech, there were a bunch of Irish immigrants who had fought for the Union. They certainly did not appreciate it. Uh, the references to their pope and their alcohol and the questioning of their loyalty. So in the end, Grover Cleveland won by a little bit, and the Democrats had their answer to that Republican uh, uh, chant, uh, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? They said, gone to the White House. Ha, ha, ha. And Cleveland proceeded uh, to a, a remarkable term, and uh, he cleaned up a lot of abuses in government, the thing is, Cleveland would do stuff that was wildly unpopular because he thought it was right. That was his governing principle was he was going to do the right thing. 
whether it helped him get reelected or not. And he was a 47-year-old bachelor. People kept saying, Grover, are you ever going to get married? He said, oh, I will. I'm waiting for her to grow up. And people laughed because they thought he was joking. But in the second year of presidency, in his presidency, he married a 22-year-old. Frances Folsom Cleveland, the youngest first lady in American history. And as crazy and eye-popping as it sounds, uh, they remained married for the rest of Cleveland's life. They had six children, and she talked glowingly about him until the day she died. Uh, well, it was different back then, though, Lewis. A lot of oh, things yeah, were accepted. Age differences were pretty common, although 47 and 22 was a little uh, a little uh, notable. But she was so popular as first lady that when he ran for re-election, they put her picture on the campaign posters as well as his and the vice president's. And when she had their first daughter, a beautiful little girl, uh, uh, I believe it was Nestle, named a candy bar after her, the baby Ruth. It was named after the baseball player, but it wasn't. It was named after President Cleveland's daughter. Okay. Mind blown <laughs> right now. <laughs> oh, now, but here's where it gets even better. So in 1888, Cleveland ran for re-election. He won the popular vote, but he lost the electoral college. And there was a lot of crush. Okay, that, that was one that probably was altered by voter fraud. And so uh, they elected Benjamin Harrison, William Henry Harrison's grandson. The White House butler asked Frances Cleveland, Madam First Lady, where do you want us to send your dishes? She said, put them in the attic. We'll be back in four years. And they were. Grover Cleveland became the only president elected to non-consecutive terms. He was the 21st and 23rd president of the United States. He came back into office for another four-year term. The only lie he ever told his president, during his second term, he was leading this horrible battle, uh, political battle over whether our currency should be gold standard or a bimetallic standard. And it really divided the country. And he was convinced that going off the gold standard would weaken the economy and weaken the country. It wasn't a popular position. In the middle of that, he developed a swelling in the roof of his mouth. And the White House doctor looked at it, and it was cancer. And it was a big tumor. It was right up in the roof of his mouth. And the doctor said, we can take it out, but we have to do it right away. And Grover Cleveland did not want to go into the hospital because the country was in the middle of a recession. He didn't want to cause a crisis of confidence. And so he had the surgery on the presidential yacht in the middle of the Potomac River. And the tumor was huge and deep. It was almost as big as a hen's egg. They had to remove part of his palate and six of his teeth in order to get it all. And the next day, he came back down to work. And the only lie he ever told, people looked at his poor, bruised, and swollen face and the blood trickling out the corner of his mouth and said, Mr. President, what's wrong? And he said, nothing. I'm absolutely fine. So far as we know, in his entire public life, that's the only lie Grover Cleveland ever told. Did they have anesthesia back then? Uh, at that time, yeah. They oh, just thank God. <laughs> really just developed it. Uh, but yeah, it was incredibly risky. Matter of fact, the Surgeon General who performed the operation told the captain of the yacht, if we hit a rock, make sure it's a big one so we all drown so we don't go to trial for killing the president. Yes, let's cover our tails, please. Wow, I have been, I feel like I've gone down through time. I've been on a time machine. And you tell the story so effortlessly. This is why you're such a good writer, you know. And you listen to these stories and you see the changes in the country. And you just see how the president, how it started, how it became more and more of a complex role. And it'll be interesting to see how I would almost say that Lincoln almost became the country's soul, if you will, and that started how the president would lead the people because followers follow their leader, and this is highly important when we make our decisions of who is going to lead our countries, whether we're in the U.S. of A. We're talking about the U.S. of A., but wherever you are, be it a prime minister, a governor, whatever, you know, you have to understand it's a role not to be taken lightly. Some humility for those who have gone before. I mean, you have to, uh, you know, that's one thing. You, you have to respect the office, which means respecting those who held it before you. You know, that's, uh, and that's something, and there's so much to learn from them. You know, a new president shouldn't have to reinvent the wheel. 
He should be able to look at the successes and failures of those who've gone before and study them and learn from them and benefit from their example, both from their achievements and also from their mistakes. Well, that is actually, Grover Cleveland was number 23. That's the halfway point of American presidents. I didn't tell you much about Benjamin Harrison. Let me lay you a quick Benjamin Harrison story on there, uh, since he kind of fell in between Grover Cleveland's two terms. He did not really start out to be a politician. He was a grandson of a president, but he wanted to be a medical doctor. And back then, medical doctors learned by doing dissections on cadavers, as they do today. But there was a tremendous shortage of cadavers because nobody donated their body to science. So in the late 19th century, you have those who are grimly nicknamed resurrection men. They would rob graves to procure bodies from medical schools who would buy them no questions asked. And so when Benjamin Harrison was a young man in medical school, the day came to witness his first dissection of a live corpse. They wheeled the corpse in, whipped the sheet off, and he screamed and fainted because it was his grandfather whose funeral he had attended five days before. Not President Harrison, but his uh, maternal grandfather. Uh, And it was enough that he left the medical profession over it and embarked in a career in law and politics instead. That'll do it. That will (laughs) do it. I knew about the resurrectionists because of, you know, my research in historicals and writing and things of that nature. But, yeah, that would do it. I will probably flip my lid, too, and I will probably become something other than what I planned on. Oh, yeah. It did did result in some – uh, a crackdown on the practice of some reforms in the laws about where medical schools could and couldn't get cadavers. So uh, some good came of it anyway, uh, although it would remain an ongoing problem. Um, a suggestion, we've kind of hit the halfway point of American presidents with number 23. Uh, would you like to uh, save the second half of American presidents for next President's Day? Sure. Let's do that because we'll have some more perspective. And I know just listening to you, I have been just invigorated, and our listeners can't see, but I've been writing notes down because he's invigorated me. I have a couple ideas going because I've always wanted to write during the Founding Fathers. I find that a very fascinating part of history is the young country and uh, influence, how influence began, uh, things of that nature. In America, when you really think about it, it's not very old. It's not an old country at all. It's not like the U.K. U.K. is thousands. It's been around for a while. I mean – not the UK itself, but the country, you know. Yeah, you know, well, Europe, and uh, I mean, well, I mean, the British crown goes back to 800 AD, so yeah. you know. uh, a long time. Um, uh, my latest novel, President Hamilton, uh, is a story of a man who never got to be president that many people think should have. I would strongly encourage your audience, if you've enjoyed tonight's discussion, surf on over to Amazon, or also, I just found out, President Hamilton's available on Walmart.com, $5 cheaper than Amazon. Uh, order yourself a copy. It is an alternative history, but there's also a lot of real historical events that are talked about in there. And I love kind of fleshing out and giving some more personality to the founding generation. So uh, I hope your listeners will check that out. And thank you so much for going along with this silly idea of mine. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. And for those of you, we did talk about President Hamilton a few weeks back, back in December 23rd, I believe. We talked about a couple of days for Christmas. So you can just go through the archive on pjcmedia.net to go ahead and listen to that and also subscribe so you never miss a show when we have one. One of the things I loved about this is all about leadership. And I can't help but always bring it back to Christ because a lot of these men were of faith. They were men of faith. Were they flawed? Undoubtedly. Some of them may have different ideas about theology. They may have been off on some things, but they were typically men of faith. And a lot of the reasons why they did what they did was because of their faith. And this becomes extremely important when you start to look at candidates. Do you just look at the policies? Do you look at what they believe? There's so many things you have to consider. So this is not a political show. We're not talking about that. We want to use history to help us make decisions for now. If we don't learn from history, we are doomed to repeat it. And it was interesting as you were talking about the presidencies of the past, there were cycles. I can remember you mentioned something about voter fraud, 
and we know it has a controversy now about voter fraud. I'm like, wow, 200 years almost, and we still have the same problem. It's, it's absolutely fascinating, and I really appreciate your perspective because you tend to look at things through a historical lens, not necessarily through a personal lens, even though you, can't, you have to admit you do have a personal bias. of oh, Everyone sure. does. Everyone there does. are no unbiased historians. No, but I think you have always impressed me as someone who tries to look at it from as objective as you possibly can. But exactly. you always look at it from the historical lens. One of the things that fascinated me uh, when we started really connecting several years ago was because you were a historian and you learned through history. And this, this, this gave you a taste. Lewis gave you a taste of the history of this country that is so rich. And those are just the cliff notes, guys, Okay. Imagine if you delved into the the history of this place, you could probably have some great stories. I already know I have some. For those of you looking for something to write about, maybe you want to write about your own country's uh, political history, what that looks like. Maybe good, maybe bad, but I tell you what, it's fascinating, isn't it? And so, Lewis, yes, I want to thank you again for being with me on the show for this very special President's Day. We're going to do the next one next year, Lord willing, nothing happens. You know, uh, they found, I found an article about an 85 mile wide comet. So if that doesn't come anywhere near, we should be fine. But Giant I'm Comet twenty twenty four. I know, right? End it now. That's going to slogan. Just end it now. But no, I I really enjoyed this so much. I know if you're a historian buff, you're going to enjoy it too. Make sure you pick up Lewis's book, President Hamilton. It is available. Also listen to the archive on PJCmedia.net. You are definitely going to enjoy it. As a matter of fact, just to put a little uh uh, give a cap to Lewis, a friend of ours was like, hey, I'm looking for a Christian historical book, or just a historical book by a Christian, it didn't matter. And I said, you should read President Hamilton. I think he read it in like two days or something. He just went through the book, and he was just like, oh my gosh, Lewis, this is really, really good. That's how good Lewis is. You know, and right now, I believe it's probably one of your best works because as you do this thing called writing, you get better and better and better, not to mention the contacts you've made in the uh, arena of President Hamilton and interest groups of that nature. So there's a lot going on. Now you're doing Lincoln, bring it on. I don't know what you're going to do with Lincoln as long as you keep me posted. (laughs) All right. All right. For our listeners out there, thank you so much for joining me for this edition of The Right Stuff. You have a wonderful, absolutely glorious blessed day, and God bless.